You are listening to Radiant Creators, a collaborative project composed of people whose passion, purpose, and dedication requires forging their own unique path of empowerment and livelihood. A Radiant Creator isn't making a living, they are living. Davish is a respected authority on Western spiritual traditions, the author of 26 books, um, including The Path of Alchemy, and the Kabbalah for Health and Wellness. He is the founder and director of the Institute for Hermetic Studies. Um, and he's appeared on, well, many, many shows, including Coast to Coast AM. And I will definitely say the Institute for Hermetic Studies, I only realized that last night and uh, instantly hopped on and started doing your, your course, uh, the uh, opening of the rose, mm-hmm. which I'm just uh, thinking I'm about Mark's at unfolding the rose. Amazing! You've created a tremendous amount of stuff, a, a tremendous amount of content, uh, and your uh, hermetic studies and the, and the lectures are impeccable. We've just been uh, kind of binge listening. And can you tell us a little bit? How did you get started? I mean, you've really gone down. It seems the hermetic path and the the alchemical path, many many esoteric studies, and here you are. And your book, Egregores, like I say, it's initially what we what we noticed and thought man this is relevant to our times so how did you get to that moment of being such a scholar and writing about egregores well i've been doing this my whole life and uh, you know my uh, family was variously involved in german folk magic my great uncle in particular and he was involved in many of the great esoteric orders of the early 20th century and, and i mean early 20th century the 30s and the 20s 30s 40s and, um, you know, he, he died in 1996, so he's 96 and a half when he died. And uh, so I, I knew him and we would go to uh, activities together and he was an astrologer and a hypnotist and all that. Some of his sisters were peripherally involved in German folk magic too. In fact, my brother was visiting a month ago and we were going through this, basically this box behind me, which looks like an old treasure chest. and we came across her, her handwritten notes on uh, using the Psalms and magic, which some people will be familiar with from the sixth and seventh books of Moses. I think I have it here. I think I, let's see if it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things you put it somewhere safe, you know, and then you forget where you put it. But uh, that's the kind of things you, you uh, uh, experience. And, you know, of course, here in the early, first, uh, you know, first quarter of the 21st century, uh, many people grow up thinking that uh, if it isn't in New York or Los Angeles or maybe San Francisco, it doesn't count. Uh, And they forget that, uh, you know, the the occult revival period of the late 19th and early 20th century was was vast in terms of Europe, but also in terms of North America and the United States. And uh, that there's a, a rich magical tradition going all the way back through the colonial period, particularly in Pennsylvania, which is directly related to the grimoires and uh, what we call Faustian magic and, and all of these wonderful Germanic hermeticism as Antoine Faber called it and all these wonderful things. So that was the, the, the milieu I, I experienced in many ways. And um, of course I was involved in various esoteric groups, Rosicrucianism, Martinism, uh, the philosophers of nature with uh, Jean Dubuis and 
many of the people in that were also part of uh, uh, Father Albertus's uh, Paracelsus Research uh, Society. And, and uh, of course, over time, I, I met many people. And, and at one point, uh, now the book came out two years ago, so maybe it was three years ago when this happened. You know, I was sitting at uh, the Lost Dog Cafe in Binghamton, New York with Jocelyn Godwin, who some of your listeners should be aware of. And uh, with that, we, I said to him, gee, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book on egregores. And uh, he said, well, that's glad because if you don't, I'll have to, you know. So, so I, yeah, just uh, originally the idea was just a small monograph and, and it didn't get much bigger than that. I mean, it, was, it is monograph size. It is kind of what I like to call baby bear's porridge. It's just right. When, when I wrote the book, I, I was tempted to make it bigger. Uh, add in more details about things. But I thought, you know what, the topic is such that we want to make it digestible for people. I think there's enough information in there where they can begin to think these ideas through themselves. They don't need me to further elaborate on them. They can begin to see what a notion of an egregore is and how they're in, connected to them and how they impact on their lives, you know, without me to having, giving them much more. So I think of the bear, I think of the book as that way. It's baby bear's porridge. It's kind of just right in size. You can easily read it, easily digest it, and yet it is, uh, uh, it is not simple. It is not simple material, but it is, uh, if you spend some time with it, you can say, oh, I get it now. Ah. And many people have told me it's a life-changing book, that it has changed their lives for the better. It explained experiences that they had. They said, that's exactly what I was experiencing. Now I understand what was happening. So that's the, the short of it. <clears throat> I like the notion of it being a baby bear's, you know, porridge, because sometimes when we take on a topic, I'm sure this is something that you, your experience is, you can go, oh my gosh, where do I start? There's so much and it can become overwhelming. And so, yeah, I like the way Igor Boris was written because it's one of those books where I would say, here, read this and call me in the morning, kind of like a doctor says, you know, take two and call me in the morning. Like, yeah, here's enough to get started and then see where you take it. And then if you want to know more, you know, come ask. So that's why we're having our little interview because <laughs> we read it. And so we had some, you know, questions. So we read it and now we're calling you in the morning. And so one question I would have up front, and I know you wrote, you wrote a whole book about it, but could you, because I know I certainly have notes and I could try to define it, but how would you define uh, an egregore kind of for the foundation of what we're going to be talking about? It's really simple. There's two definitions. There's a classical one and a modern one in there. They're not necessarily exclusive, but there's a, it's on a continuum. So the modern one would be very much like a, a collective consciousness, like you would think of in Jungian terms, groupthink that we hear a lot about, group identity. And you see this all around. People identify with group, group dynamics, uh, group activity. And look, um, you become like the five people you spend the most time with. Psychological studies have shown that. You know, if you, if you want to improve your life, you have to, have to improve your friend, network of friends. Uh, you know, you, you don't get enlightened hanging out with people who aren't meditating or working on their path. That's why you see uh, so much emphasis in, in Buddhism on, on what they call the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The Sangha is the community of the faithful, the community of practitioners uh, on one level. And it's the same way in any group. So you have to pick your friends very carefully, particularly in spiritual practices. Because as we see, there's been profound degeneration of spiritual practice, a profound, profound proliferation of practice, but also degeneration of practice as it becomes heavily politicized, which is an example of that groupthink. 
so there's that aspect of, like I said, your, your grandmother told you, you know, be careful of the company you keep because it will affect your, your destiny or your, uh, in many ways. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is a classical view, which has to do with a, a hierarchy or continuum of entities from the visible realm down here on terra firma, us human beings, and all the way into the invisible. And that's where you hear this notion of the watchers and the angels and all of these things, deities and their various egregores. And then there's another aspect that kind of bridges these two, um, or really is just a, maybe a further elaboration of the second one, in which various organizations, occult organizations, spiritual organizations, political organizations, may have these egregores, uh, which involve a variety of invisible beings as well where the community of the faithful, the household of the faithful, the saints, uh, whoever is considered the, the holy uh, family, the, the lineage uh, holders, uh, ancestors, make up the connection in the invisible between the visible realms. In the book, you did mention how uh, Irgoras can be ancestral. So, I mean, there, people really can be following uh, ancestral egregores within their their family that are very just unique to that uh, I guess you say family and or culture like one that I have felt I was a part of was a military egregore because I look at my you know my family and it's been um, uh, forever a generation after generation a military family everyone's been in the military you know and then I just ended up in the military too when I was a kid and it seemed that that was a, now, could that be a definition of an egregore, like sort of an ancestral or a family egregore? Well, it's part of it. And, and it's also part of the force of habit. Now, occult uh, egregores and, and habit go hand in hand because an egregore is a social conditioning or social control mechanism. It limits your sphere of social influence. And that can be good because if you want to be an engineer, there's only so many English literature classes you can take in college. You know, um, and uh, you go into the military and you're given a, uh, an assignment, uh, a duty assignment, which you then specialize in. And then if you're really good, maybe you get a second one. And then if you're super good, like in special forces, you end up with three of them. So, but even there, there's still a limit. How many of these things can you uh, specialize in? You know, so that, that's what happens. You, you have social control mechanisms. Um, and they can work for or against you, depending on what they are. Now, within the families that are highly uh, involved in the military, you know, the, the military itself is its own egregore. The various branches are. I mean, that's how you have some of that friendly rivalry between them. And sometimes not so friendly, but for the most part, it's, it's usually pretty good. And uh, you see that failure, and I do count it as a failure, of people, once they leave the military, to actually leave it. You know, they, they may not, uh, they may be discharged, but mentally they never leave. No, I understand. And that's, uh, I've often kind of felt that's the same way with people's you know, college and high school and such exactly. like that. It's that. Exactly. Yeah. Why are you going to a high school, like, like your, your 50th high school reunion? Who cares? <laughs> and, and, you know, if you had really good friends with, maybe it's some time to look back. I mean, there can be reasons for it, uh, but at the same time, they have to be healthy reasons. It's the same thing with the, the, the never leaving the military. If you have skills that you've learned, like making your bed, keeping your room clean, knowing where you put the stuff, that's fine. But if, if all it creates in you is a kind of an obsession with, uh, with guns, uh, 
and uh, you know that that kind of you know uh, attitude, which is more or less geared towards combat and violence. Because let's face it, most people going to the military end up in combat arms. I mean, so just to be clear for the listener, why I bring that up, you know, you don't have a lot of guys going into the high tech field because they can leave it. They end up, you know, going to work for Boeing. <laughs> they end up going to work for you know Lockheed Martin or something in a, in a way. Um, not to say they've ever really left it there, but uh, my point is that the attitude is different. And that, uh, so when you, you, you find that in the families where, you know, so-and-so is in the military and in the military, and then you see these silly things about, you know, no president should be president who hasn't served in the military. Well, I'll tell you, well, that would, that would, you know, what does that really have to do with it? You know, there's this belief that somehow there's a lesson learned. And that's a, that's why that becomes a problematic, a problematic egregore because of problematic uh, way of looking at things or focus. It's a very narrow view of things. But at the same time, you can look at that and say, well, I know people whose lives were saved because they had to join the military. They, yeah, had, to I, learn, they had to learn discipline. They had to learn how to follow orders. They had to learn how to cooperate. Their lives were 100% turned around and saved by being in that institution. So see, this is where this is where it becomes a tricky. You know, I've, I've just, we can build wonderful instances and show wonderful examples of how people can benefit from this uh, groupthink, but they have to be able to benefit from it. And that means by getting what is good out of it, applying it to their lives and then extracting themselves from it, not having it overshadow and influence them well beyond its expiration date. Exactly. And that's, I know one thing that is talked about in the book is, you know, is an egregore good or is an egregore bad? And it's really, as you're, as you're stating it, uh, the egregore is, and then you extract from it what you uh, can gain from that that is positive, then you have to, I guess you would say, destroy that egregore, disconnect from it. And that's one thing definitely at the end, if we get through everything, I definitely want to talk about was, because that's one that in reading your book was something I found was, I do have this you know military egregore that I was a part of, and one thing I realized is maybe I never really disconnected from it completely. It's fine to have some pride. It's fine to, you know, I do like making my bed, you know, things yeah, like that, yeah. you know? It's like, but at the same time, there's the egregore of being a soldier, especially if you feel that it's somebody ancestral, it goes back in your family. Um, as far as your, your family's culture, you realize, well, there's a lot. Um, if you don't, if you don't lose that egregore after it serves, and I'm, I may be using the military one as an example, that hinders you because a soldier exists in a certain way that is not necessarily going to benefit that person as they go through life. You know, it, it, it may work for you. It may not. But for me, I found that, wait a second, you know, I'm 50 now and I need to stop being a soldier. You know, I, I need, I need to uh, banish that egregore, disconnect from it because it, there's aspects of my life where it's hindering me. Oh, and that's, that's why it's a good one to bring up because, you know, we've been at war for 20 years now and uh, you know, we've created a lot of uh, veterans. And I say, you know, if you really want to honor veterans, the best way to honor them is to stop making them. And, and that's a perfect reason. And, and it's amazing how many veterans take offense to that. Yeah, I, mean, I get look, it. You, see, you should be saying that's right. If war is such a horrible thing, then the best way to honor veterans is to stop wars. You know, stop psychologically and physically damaging people. 
you know, but they, within that, they read a host of things. As soon as they hear that, they read a host of things. And you, you're nodding your head because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, you've got to be a communist. You've got to be a pacifist. You've got to be, you're not patriotic. Nothing which was ever said. It was just saying, like, used to say at the bottom of every comic, remember Sergeant Rock comic books? You know, make war no more, you know? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you know, you see at the bottom. You know, if, if that's what you really honor. But the problem is with the military is the egregores are self-serving. So it needs more soldiers, literally and figuratively. The military needs more soldiers, and any egregore you're in needs more soldiers. It needs to grow. It needs to feed. So that's where they become toxic entities. That's where you see, like, Eisenhower in his uh, speech about the military industrial complex where he talked why he was so concerned with it because it, he knew the size the behemoth that was being created but we see that in every area I, you know I, I just want to stay on that only because we, we're all so familiar with it you know with, with it's so ubiquitous now we've so militarized society whether it be the police force or whether it be you know the veterans discounts everywhere you know it's this notion of uh, that everyone's a hero if you served and I've said to people, no, you're not. I know a lot of people who didn't want to be in the military. They did it because they had to. It was the way they paid for college. It was a job. They were mercenaries, whether we like to admit that or not. And, and this is kind of how egregores, at least the military one, you know, becomes a self-serving entity. Now, we can drop that onto politics. We can drop that onto religion. We can drop that onto family mythos. We can drop this anywhere we want. But this is a good one to start because so many people are so tenaciously embedded in that one and look we need we need military we've got enemies just like we need police forces we've known criminals okay yet we have to know boundaries too and we have to know what those boundaries are and egregores are social and control mechanisms that seek to grow which means that's a boundary that's always seeking to suck in more resources and grow and grow and include more in it yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the egregore is literally fed with our prayers, you might say, our, I think you had most mentioned in the book, our emotions. That's yes. one thing about, about the military one where it's literally fed with our bodies. Oh, your blood, your blood, your, your blood. sweat, your tears, all of it, and, and those, uh, the cadence songs that you sing. I mean, and the old ones are pretty terrible. You know, I mean, if we, if we said some of yes. them now, you know, <laughs> God, uh, and, and, but, and they were all about death and destruction. And, you know, that's part of the desensitizing of it. That's a mantra. Mm -hmm. I mean, with a prayer and a mantra, it's a mind conditioning mechanism. Yeah. And uh, who, was, who was the fellow who wrote a great book on this, uh, on killing? Uh, on killing. Uh, 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 Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, Grossman, I think. Grossman. A fabulous book, particularly his last section on mind conditioning. And, and people may think this isn't relevant, but it is because... This kind of conditioning takes place in a variety of mechanisms, not just, you know, uh, the military. And, and just to, to clear the air for listeners who may be wondering, I mean, you know, I, I've often told my kids, you know, war and shooting isn't like video games. I'll gladly take you down to the dry fire range down the street run by the former military policeman. And you can, you know, get some real hands-on training to know exactly what a gun is like so you know, so you don't have any illusions about it. So, I mean, just, you know, to keep that clear, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to say there's, there's a balance here that we have to look for in everything. And egregores, don't, egregores don't know balance. Mm. Oh, that's, that's true. A good, that's a good thing, a good way to think of it. I, I just, that just really just occurred to me. By their nature, they don't know balance because they're so singular in focus. 
Oh, wow. Well, if there's ever, um, I'm actually going to make a note of that, Don't Know Balance. So if there's ever a, 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 a version two of the book, Don't Know <laughs> Balance. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that in, right? <laughs> yeah, that needs to be added. Don't Know Balance. Cause in that, and that alone, that explains a lot, you know. Um, and one thing I think about, not to dwell on the military topic too much, but I sort of see it spilling over into uh, the civilian life a bit. And what I mean by that is, and it probably always has, but like you mentioned, we've been creating veterans for 20 years, you know, for a long, long time. And so now, you know, being a veteran, so not, so you're in the military, there's one egregore, but now there's being a veteran, that's another egregore. And mm-hmm. now we're starting to have this kind of operatory sort of like I've got my, you know, like my tight t-shirt with like second amendment saying on it and I've got my beard and, you know, there's this sort of, I call it like operator culture, you know, which is sort of now you're kind of this like ex special forces, ex military, you know, civilian, there's it, the egregore seems to um, want to create new egregores because, well, okay, there's the military egregore, but now there's going to be the veteran egregore. Now there's going to be the, uh, I was a special forces uh, veteran, Igor and now I'm just an operator guy with my raised pickup truck and my, you know, three percent right. well, sticker. Well, what, you have, what you have is it's like anything. You have you have an umbrella. Think of like companies and franchises. You know, you have the umbrella company, and then you have sub subsidiaries underneath that, and then you might have subsidiaries and franchises, and sh- you know maybe shell companies if it's illegal. But it's the same thing is happening there. The fundamental egregore of uh, the military would fall into the, do- the domain of Mars, the planet Mars, and with that, all martial gods. So anyone who has contact with that in some way, uh, you know, experiences what is happening in that. And of course, the, 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 the discipline and the rigor of it is so strong and so, so forming that it stays with people their lives, because that's, where else are you going to that kind of adrenaline and dopamine rush? It's just not going to happen. And Grossman talks about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, and where is he going to get that sense of uh, solidarity with people? There was a book by uh, Sebastian Younger, I believe his name is, and it's just called um, Tribe. And it's a fairly new book. And he talks about how a lot of the PTSD, a lot of the uh, suicides that we see from veterans is because they've lost their sense of uh, tribe, a family. So it's there actually... Yeah, like that's gone now, and and so it, it was so integral. Yeah, now Sergeant, uh, like Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, great, great books. He's got a couple, and all of them are are just um amazing, and uh, they're well, good if you were in the military. Just mm-hmm. for those of you who know, I mean, I I have it. He he did a wonderful five CD series or DVD yes. series on the preparation of the mindset for violence, the execution of violence, and what occurs after you've executed violence. And I think that this is very important to, uh, for people to understand, particularly in this highly militarized culture. And I include video games in that, by the way, um, that we've created or this nonsense superheroes, you know, this superhero adoration that we've created with, with entertainment. But, you know, when you look at that and you extend that over to other areas, you know, you know people have lost their sense of purpose. This is why it's very difficult for people to leave uh, cults. And I use that in the pejorative sense or even strictly speaking, very strongly regulating religious movements uh, or families even, because they lose their sense of purpose uh, or how shaping purpose is so important. You know, when the Democratic Party 
was uh, a party advocating, uh, at least in theory for the, the working class, it had a positive purpose. When it turned itself into the opposition, and note, this is a pivotal point, this is a pivotal turn, okay? When it's no longer for, but it's against. Once you've turned yourself into something that is against something, you can never stop because your purpose, you can never fulfill your purpose. Wow. Having a purpose that I get that. That's actually you see, very you, true. You can't, you, because if you fulfill your purpose, you have no reason for being. You've got to find a whole new reason for being. And, and at least when we talk about, you know, for example, the military, there's other areas where those skill sets are valuable and you can transition those. And I don't mean combat arms, but those other sense of discipline, organization, uh, you know, people who learn uh, technical skills. There's, there's whole areas where you can use that. And I know many people who have. Okay. And uh, same thing with certain religious aspects too. When you're in that highly uh, devout religious uh, function, you're not going to get that kind of dopamine rush, that adrenaline rush anywhere else. Everybody's focused on the same thing. You feel, oh man, this is a family. And the, the notice the language of family is often used. Okay. We're brothers, it's a brotherhood, it's a fraternity, we're a family, these are your brothers and sisters, this is mother or mom or dad or papa. And all of this builds a culture uh, that you see, well, this sounds like a cult, and, and in many ways it is. But at the same time, uh, we can see it in, uh, we're using extreme examples here, just so the listener knows, you and I are intentionally talking about very extreme examples, just so you can wrap your head around the ideas. And then when you go out, you're going to begin to see this in really much more subtle forms. It's going to much be, be much more subtle in, in, in your day-to-day -day experience. But you can see it in the media as well. The language of the media is directive. Uh, it's not something like, you know, Japs bomb Pearl Harbor, which now everyone would be getting up on arms about the fact that the word Japs was used rather than it was Pearl Harbor was bombed. You know, so that in and of itself is a turn. Instead of it being that, you see the language in the headlines about directing you to how to respond emotionally to the content. So you don't even have to read the content. You're being directed emotionally on how to respond to it. So pay attention to that when you see headlines on the papers or in your, or in your newsfeed, because that's part of that directive social control mechanism at work. And that's not necessarily an egregore, but that's an example of, of how that happens in daily life, how we're subtly suggested or directed in directions. Yeah, and I guess the, I believe in the book you mentioned that it's the media's job, we might say the mainstream media, we can call it that, or just the media, um, to create uh, egregores. I mean, it's, it's actually, does that sound valid? I mean, I, I, would, I would say it's its job. I would say it's a valid side effect. Mm. It's just a side effect. It's what it does. You know, my, my job is not to create litter when I create a wrapping for a box. It's just a side effect of what happens. And, you know, depending on how that goes, the, these thought forms are created. And that's an important point. All egregores are thought forms, but not all thought forms are egregores. The difference being is an egregore is always a collective entity. It's more than just one person. You know, you need two people because you have to have a group. And that's why it seeks to grow because it gets bigger and bigger. That sense of commitment and community is always part of it. Egregores require an abuse of your idealism, not just a manipulation, but an abuse, you know, your goodwill, 
your patriotism, you know, for the military often, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, um, your desire to make the world a better place. Yes. Aren't you, you're being selfish if you don't be involved in this, you know? Yeah. Don't you, you don't you feel, don't you have compassion? What about this? So the, the notion is always projecting uh, something that will allow you to forget your own personal goals and objectives and take on the personal goals and objectives of whatever the group is and make them your own. You have to identify with the group. You have to identify with the goals and objectives so that you are completely uh, subservient to it on some way. On some way, because you can still function in daily life. Uh, you know, you may have a job and a family, but you can, uh, you can still find that the the egregore of whether it's your bowling league or the, the parents teachers association or, or your, your local Masonic lodge. Well, there's, there's somewhat uh, 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 negligible in terms of impact, uh, but your, your religious organization, your political organization now becomes dominant. And that's where we see, you know, whole families getting torn apart by this uh, silly and ridiculous uh, political charade that's going on across the world really, but particularly in the United States at this time, but really across the world. Western the industrialized nations. No, definitely. And that kind of leads into something I made a note to ask you about is a good number of people that we know, and ourselves included, uh, after watching the uh, presidential debate, you know, and I, I come at this completely 100% from a non-partisan standpoint. It's not, it's nothing I'm not, I'm not seeing it that way. I'm just thinking more of a, I'd usually say energy, but I'll just say like allegoric way. It seems that many people that we knew, a noticeable number, could have been a coincidence, could have just been psychological, but they felt ill. They felt physically ill after watching the debate. Well, and I think I think that's in part because there uh, there's this a valid psychological response, a psychosomatic response. Remember, it's hard to draw lines on this. We have a psychosomatic response to what's happening. And I did not watch the debate. Uh, I had no intention of it. Good enough. Um, <laughs> well, I'm I'm ten miles from Scranton. Uh, you know, my insight on uh, <laughs> on Joe Scranton Biden is a bit different from. <laughs> most people out there. So I have no intention of, of watching this, this, uh, this debate because I, I have the impression that it, it would not benefit me in any way. So um, there you have it. Uh, I, I, people are going to watch this and they're going to get anxious and they're going to mm -hmm. wonder, why am I getting so upset? Well, you did it to yourself. It's the same way as people who get all riled up over sporting events. Yes. You know, it's the same thing. It's an egregore. You just get sucked into it. Yes. And it's easy to get sucked in. That's one of the things uh, in, in the book you mentioned was unless you avoid people, you're not going to avoid egregores. And so one of the things that got me was with the debate, we were like, nah, and we we're like, I'm not going to watch that. We didn't have any interest in it. But then of course we got, you know, invited to a debate party. You know, and we mm -hmm. were like, let's get out and hang out with some people. It'll be fun. And so it was fun. Um, but afterwards, the next day we were like laid out. We we're like, man, I feel, I feel like crap, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and everybody was like texting each other. Do you feel good? No, I don't feel good. I don't feel good either. What, what happened? Yeah. 
Well, well, there's a variety of psychic parasites that yes. people aren't familiar with, and and you know, egregores aren't necessarily parasites, but they can be. Par they are parasitical um, in that regard. Again, we can be have positive ones as well, and they can change over time as well. You know, they as the as the people in them change, they can change. As the emotions in them change, they change. Uh, I'm sure you're involved with many wonderful organizations in your life. You did a great time, and then somehow some people change, the dynamic changes, and you're like, ah, this isn't fun anymore, or I just don't feel the same way about it, or it's time to move on. Um, that's part of life as well. But we have to pay attention to those feelings and, and separate ourselves out from it. I think the problem with mm -hmm. the, the egregore notion is that it's so massive and, and all-inclusive, people then feel, is there anywhere I can go where there isn't an egregore? And the answer is no. Uh, the, the point is, does that matter? And the answer is, not really, because egregores are subject to duality. A duality is a vast subject uh, within the spiritual question. And the way one transcends duality is through their own enlightenment or illumination. That is what provides them with uh, what we would call, uh, for lack of a better term, liberation, although that doesn't quite fit. So with that said, you can free yourself from egregores in the same way you can uh, swim in shark-infested waters in a shark tank. You know, you can, you can have, a, you can free yourself from their influence. Oh, at definitely. Least, you know, at least there's overwhelming and strong influence. Yeah, we definitely want to go into that a bit um, because I think that was, that'd be very helpful, helpful for people. It's something we've been thinking about for sure. And, but one thing about the uh, egregores that exist right now, um, like current egregores that are in play today, I, I feel like it'd be kind of fun to just focus on what egregores do you think are really taking center stage right now? We're living in a very intense time. And to me, it seems like we've got, you know, the left, right egregores. And then we also have um, a lot of riots going on. If we just be America specific, the whole world's kind of crazy right now, but the, uh, the, the, the riots that we have going on right now, those egregores seem like something right out of uh, Batman. <laughs> when I was a youngster reading the Batman comics and, and uh, uh, Alfred Pennyworth said to um, uh, Bruce Wayne about the Joker, when Bruce Wayne was trying to figure out who is a Joker, why does this guy do this stuff? And he said, they can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Mm -hmm. It just seems like we just had this incredibly dis destructive egregore that just wants to watch the world burn in the form of the riots that we're seeing. You know, so like, what are some of the egregores do you think, oh, sorry, what are some of the egregores that you think are very prevalent right now? Well, you know, that notion of self-destruction is, you know, the Thantos or death wish that I believe, uh, I think Freud might have spoken about it, but Jung spoke about it as well. Just as we have this goal towards total self-actualization and total self-realization and actualization that is putting it into action, into result, you know, we also have a, a, an almost a desire to destroy everything uh, that is good that we have to balance out. And uh, so you see that, that function. Again, this is part of the function of duality. And as things swing back and forth, you know, individuals, depending on their degree of self-awareness, which actually is what defines them as an individual rather than anything else, um, you know, respond to these influences, you know, whether they be 
uh, astrological influences, believe that or not, whether it be psychic influences, believe that or not, or whether it be simply the well-documented and power of a suggestion, which we see as used through media and propaganda. Okay, people don't want to believe it, but you know, that's tough, doesn't matter. Just because you don't believe something doesn't make it uh, not true or doesn't mean you're not influenced by it. Uh, as we say, that one of the famous uh, jokes was John Wanamaker said, uh, half of all of my advertising dollars are wasted. I just wish I knew which half. And, and that explains the, the level of message bombardment that you see. Because that message bombardment, that repetition, 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 is designed to wear down or bypass any psychological resistance you may have to whatever that message is, whether it's a religious one, a political one, a mixed one, what have you. So it's, it's uh, what we would call multidimensional uh, combat, if you will. That's where you see, you know, the message comes at you in every way possible, whether it's a billboard on a bus, a message uh, that pops up on your screen because of something you looked at on Amazon, something you get on your, your email and, and, and you have a, uh, an, an advertising for the very thing you looked at or messages that come through your phone. All of this is multidimensional uh, combat in which your mind is both the battlefield and the trophy. Mm. And it, yeah, it does seem that uh, one of the things that helps us navigate uh, really is that that self-awareness and some kind of a a cultivation of that some kind of a a a a, a, a practice where you have that self-awareness and, and you sort of have an inner authority and so then the egregore ultimately is always external to you and you're not really becoming you're not really internalizing it Does that's that right seem valid? that's yeah. correct and and the issue there is also being being comfortable with ambiguity See, the, the egregore being, so if all of these things are trying to get you to be yes, no, yes, no, if then. And what I'm saying is that that's conditioning. And, you know, the definition of enlightenment is really the pause between the gaps of stimulus response in our own mind. I mean, really, if you ask, you know, any of these, uh, what is Dzogchen or, or any of the, 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 the yogas, like Raja Yoga, what is, how does enlightenment occur? Well, it's simply, it's by extending the gap between stimulus response so that in that gap there is a silence or a potentiality of realization but if everything is boom 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 that's called training see like in the military you weren't educated you were trained because training is about stimulus response I mean, there was an educational component, but do you understand what I'm saying? Most of what was you were what you were experiencing was conditioning, oh, stimulus yeah. response, stimulus response. Well, that's a great one because then you can see this in other areas of life. Whereas, if you extend that gap between stimulus response, you know, they say, you know, count to ten before you respond, or breathe deep and count to ten, or don't send that email just yet, mm -hmm. hold on. All of that is about allowing you time to think. And allowing you time, often not just to think, but to not think, to just slow down. And in that slowing down, say, you know what? Mm, okay, that wasn't that important. Or maybe I need to reword that. Or maybe I took that the wrong way. Or maybe I should reconsider. It makes but sense. 
all that, so everything that you get bombarded by is stimulus response, which is the antithesis of enlightenment. So you need a meditative process that allows you to slow down and not react, but respond. Response is something that you think about or has awareness behind it. Reacting is just conditioning. And that's really good, you know, if you don't want to get shot, or that's really good if you need to tie your shoelaces, or really good if you're a short order cook and are juggling a lot of dishes at the same time. Mm -hmm. But in other areas of our life, it's not good. Yes. And we have to be, and we have to be the ones that begin to figure out what that is. And that's where the responsibility lies on us. Absolutely. Yeah. So it seems like really maybe the, the, the real core of managing a world of, uh, of egregores is ultimately that, that self-awareness definitely. Cause then you have a place you can, you can work and observe from, you know, that's right. Cause your identity is internal. You're mm -hmm. self-referential. Well, you notice is an egregore always gives you external references. Yes. You know, that's why, that's why you see identity politics is such a problem because it's all external. I am mm -hmm. this, I am that, you know, yeah. I am, I am, you know, the identity is always uh, with something very uh, transient or uh, it's still, it can still be important, but not all encompassing. You know, I mean, and I give this one, and this is a, a big one that we, we've talked about, about with other people who are therapists. You know, one of the problems with uh, uh, the, uh, what is it, the multi-letter LGBT uh, identifier is that it becomes all encompassing to every area of one's life. So, so one's whole identity is wrapped up around uh, a sexual preference or sexual occupation. I mean, from a psychic viewpoint, that's terribly damaging because it's like saying you're stuck in your second chakra. Mm -hmm. It's infantilizing is what it is. Not to say that people don't have, you know, certain uh, need to be treated respectfully and with certain, uh, you know, rights, but, but to have that as your sole identifier, it's like your sole identifier is race or your sole yeah. identifier is religion. You know, if this is going to be your sole identifier, then anything that comes and uh, approaches that from a perspective different from the one you hold dear now becomes an enemy. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's a legal term for it and I forget what it is. Something that judges consider. That's a very cool name. It's like starry something. I, I'm sorry. I don't remember what it is, but the idea is that if there has been a, a, a standing, um, especially if it's been a standing for a long time, then it should have a certain weight, a certain validity because it probably existed for a reason. It doesn't mean that it couldn't be wrong and changed, but what exists, especially if it's, if it's existed for a long time, probably shouldn't be changed. And I know that we can have, there's plenty of ancient neurosis, I get that. Mm -hmm. But um, it's something that we're seeing, which I think right now is very uh, confusing to people. Definitely, as we're, as we're talking, it makes me think about, uh, we've been male or female for a long time. You know what I mean? That really has just been kind of binary, one or the other. And now that has changed and has changed drastically. And so it does seem that uh, there's a validity to all of history as far as I know, there being two sexes and now there's fluidity. And well, there's well, a biological validity that can't be changed. You yeah. need a man or a woman to have a baby. Yeah. That's it. And I, I can self-identify as a woman all I want. I still don't have ovaries. Yeah. And 
And there's a problem with that because what you see is, again, that whole notion falls under the, the, an area that is not well researched or understood in, in psychic research, but which George Hansen has explored in depth in his book, The Trickster and the Paranormal. Mm. And that's what happens when the paranormal takes on a greater and greater role in uh, the, the public arena, the public square and, and public life. And that public life can be an organization's life. Like that's why a lot of organizations involved in psychic activity collapse is because they don't have a strong central point. But things are essentially binary, as I said, duality. Mm -hmm. And it swings between these. Now there's gradations between this, but at the end of the day, you're alive or you're dead. You're male or you're female. You may be you may be male and you may be gay. You may be female and you may be gay, but you're still biologically male or female, okay? There's still that possibility, we're assuming no other problems involved, uh, but physically that is, there's, there's the possibility of reproduction, okay? So my point is we have these basic binaries that we always deal with in life, whether we like them or not. Now, in our personal lives, we can have a wide swing. We can have a lot of fluidity there in our personal lives, there is a problem when that fluidity moves into the town square. And I mean fluidity in all areas where we don't have identifiable characteristics uh, that we can, that are solid and, and reliable. And that's when you see collapse happen. Um, in, but that, th that kind of egregore that you're talking about in that case is an egregore we would call a force of chaos, a force mm -hmm. of dissolution. And in, uh, in Bun, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, in Bun, they have a, a name for that. There's the, the prana of, of dissolution, the prana yeah. of the era ending force. So mm. that would even, there would even, that would be like a forces of chaos, if you will, on, on, a, on a broader scale. But they have to use something. So they have to use what we have and, and what, what we've got. Just as we have to use what we've got to build things against chaos. Mm. See, the question is, what are you as an individual going to identify with in your life? That's the ultimate question. And how is that identifying force going to be something that allows you to grow and expand or which limits you? And that was my original reason for bringing that point up because so many people use it as a, a force of extreme limitation rather than as a force of expansion. You know, uh. they, identi they identify just with this, you know, this is what I am, okay. You're nothing more. This mm. is who I am. But, but what else are you? Yeah, and and ultimately the the uh, egregore uh, actually something that comes to mind is where um, in the movie The Matrix, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> when uh, Neo and Trinity are in the backseat of the car. And they're driving through an old uh, a part of town that he oftentimes frequented. Mm -hmm. he, and he said, "Oh, you know, I, I used to eat eat noodles there. They had good noodles. I, 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 I guess I that wasn't real. Like, what does that mean?" And uh, Trinity says, "You know, it means the Matrix can't tell you who you are." And so ultimately, that's one of the, is that a limitation of the uh, egregore. Also, is that it can't tell you who you are. That that seeking is internal. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I say we identify with certain things as we go through life. You know, we identify, you know, first as an infant and we identify strongly with the mother. 
uh, because that's where, generally speaking, we get our, our life and substance from and our, and our, our nurturing. Then we have to separate from that and identify with the father as we learn to deal with the world. And as we go through that, then we identify with family. At the same time, we're expanding that into family. I belong to this family. Oh, I live on this block. These are my neighbors. I go to this school. Okay, I identify, you know, the, the school mascot, you know, and all of that. School pride. And, and, and you keep expanding your sphere of identification. As you add more egregores to it or more group think to it, you expand your sphere of identification and you grow. However, then there comes a point where you, we, we tend to identify with an aspect of ourself where the growth stops. Mm. You know, and that can be sexual orientation as a form of stopping one's, one's growth. Well, this is who I am and I identify with all, all things associated with this. This can be political identification. I identify with this and I don't want to hear about anything else. I identify with this religious view and I don't want to hear anything else. And you can even change. I mean, people convert to religions all the time. And you see that with the true believer syndrome. Mm. You see someone joins something. I'm a true believer. Got to be more Catholic than the Pope, you know, more Buddhist than the Dalai Lama, you know, because you've given other stuff away. You've walked away from that. Now you have to fill the void. And the egregores are more than willing to help you do that. Mm, they fill the void. Yeah. They're more and, than willing to help you do that. And along with religion, I see that also in diet. I mean, so many people, they go from, uh, they go, I'm vegan and this is the way to go. And everybody else is bad. Now, uh, <laughs> now I'm carnivore. I only eat meat. And if you eat greens, then you're eating survival food. And then, oh, I'm a this, I'm a that. And people make these wild swings of how they eat. And, and, and you, uh, you can see that, I see that quite often. And I just think to myself, like, what happened to your uh, discernment, your equilibrium, your common sense? You know, you're, you're doing something so off balance and you're saying like you found God. And, yeah. <laughs> and well, yeah, that's, all, yeah. that's great because you, you, two things are right there. One is you, you said it, I am this, I am that. And uh, I remember my great uncle, who was also a hypnotist, he said, you know, when, when Moses saw the burning bush, he, he asked, you know, well, who are you? And God said, I, I am that I am. And really it meant I am that which is becoming, but it's translated as I am that I am. And, and I'm sure Moses felt that that was very helpful at the time. Uh, but that's the most powerful word you can say in hypnosis. Mm. I am. See, what happens is when we self-identify, whether in the yogas and you read about the yoga mantras like Tatsadom and uh, this kind of stuff, uh, I am is the most powerful thing you can say. And if you say I am and you leave it at that, notice how quickly your mind wants to fill in an identifier. How quickly you want to fill in this identifier. Whereas in, in the notion of the spiritual process of, of, of becoming or enlightenment, you realize that you, those are identifiers. Those aren't you. You can be I am and nothing fills in the blankness. What we do is in our seek to identify with something or to be something, we, we fill in that blank. And, and that's where all our problems come from. That's literally the fall, by the way, if you wanna give a, an interpretation to Genesis. The fall is that identifying force of I am because the force of attraction. I am blank, whatever that blank is, is the force of attraction. So you're constantly creating yourself every time you say I am and you're reinforcing or recreating whatever falls after it. 
that's why language is such a, an important controlling mechanism in, in hypnosis and magic and politics and advertising. Mm. And people will find that they have egregores that it is time to let go. So of, and I could like reference my military one, you know, and uh, as I read the book, you know, egregores here, and uh, others that I know have also now, and we talk about it, we all find that uh, something comes up that we know we need to let go, mm -hmm. but it's difficult. Um, it, isn't, it isn't a lack of will to give it up, but there's habit, there's, you, yeah. you name it. It, it, it's our egregore, it exists for It us. is the emotional attachment. It's the emotional attachment. And so that was something I'd like to, you know, uh, finish up in, in, in talking about is how can the individual, once they realize, okay, I have this attachment and it no longer serves me, it's holding me back. I can definitely glean what is good. The wisdom that has come from it is mine mm -hmm. and that's done, you know, right. but now the attachment is negative and it has to be broken. And so how can people, I really believe, as you mentioned in the book, it requires ritual. So how can a person leave that egregore behind it seems like they can be creative in their ritual what suits them yes and it can be when we say ritual we're using that term very broadly because uh, a, a form of um what is the, the the phrase i think we used in the book was um therapeutic blasphemy i think yes therapeutic blasphemy yes. is often called for in which we blaspheme uh, the thing which holds us dear um, to realize that it doesn't have that power to damn us that we think it does. And I'm reminded of a story in which my, uh, my, my grandfather, when he was a child, you know, he was always told, you know, you got to go to church, got to go to church. If you don't, you know, you go to hell or something. And of course he, he skipped church as a very young child a few times. And the, 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 the priest said something to him. And uh, of course, being young kids, they were, they were quite snarky in what they said back. But, uh, you know, they weren't damned. And that was a breaking of that connection. Now, was it a good breaking? I don't know. Uh, that is only for him to figure out. But it, it's that kind of strength of cold that once it's broken, it, there's a freedom that comes over. Now, what you do with it is up to you. Okay. It's like I said, you can, you can identify with things that are out of the, uh, the norm of, 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 we said, of these extremes that is within the gradation area that is very unique and personal to you. But that doesn't mean you have to get caught up in everything external with it. You know, you don't have to feel the need to follow, you know, whatever, whatever else is pulling on that. You can just use this as an expression of your own unique individuality without having to turn it into a public affair or a public event. And I think that's the important part. Okay. Um, so you you begin to recognize okay how much of this is for me and how much is this is for some like public consumption yeah yeah it's like and, we, and, and, we and, well, and I, yeah, yeah and i said it seriously you know well yeah because i mean uh we do uh, something that comes to mind is uh this habit of uh instagramming our lives correct you know where if you have this ritual, which is about, uh, and I'll just use that term for it, this ritual to disconnect from this egregore, 
because you know I can't destroy that egregore, let's say the, the military egregore, but I can right. disconnect it, that's I can dis disconnect from it. That's a personal deep thing. And so there really is no way, nor is there any value. Probably I would say there's, there's a, uh, um, a derogatory value. It's not good to actually like Instagram that moment. Like here I am destroying, <laughs> I'm going to Instagram this. No, it's personal. You're correct. It's, it's not it, because it's not that, that just reinforces it rather than weakens yes. it, your connection. And we don't need to destroy the military egregore. We just need to no longer identify with it. It's like Boy Scouts. You know, my kids were in Scouts. It was a lot of fun. Uh, okay, that's done. I, I don't need to identify with it anymore. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, the way you do is you take everything associated with that egregore, and, and whether it be uh, all of your medals, all of your uh, diplomas, your uniform, all this stuff, and you put it in a box and you put it in the closet for a month or two or three. And you take everything off the walls and you you stop listening to any radio shows or blogs that had anything to do with it. You, you get rid of all of those uh, bookmarks for, you know, veterans pages. And, you know, what's that funny one I get people send me, was it duffel blog or something where they have these. Oh, these duffel bag. Yeah. Duffel bag. Yeah. <laughs> funny cartoons. Right. And, you know, you get rid of all that stuff. Uh, and the same thing, if it's a religion or, or, or a religious movement or a spiritual movement or a guru or a cult or a lodge, get rid of everything in a box, don't throw it out. Okay, books, music, everything. And you notice literally how much space you have, literally on your walls and in your room. And then suddenly you realize after about a week or two when you're no longer seeing it, where are your thoughts going and how much free space you have in your mind. And then after two or three months, you can go back and decide if you, what you wanna keep and what you wanna get rid of. And I say, if you're going to get rid of anything, like if it was very personal and you need to destroy it, make sure you burn it and burn it completely to an ash, burn it completely. But you do so in a matter that says, thank you very much for everything we've learned and let this be transformed into something new, just as you would a cremation pyre. You know, a cremation is the body's turned to ash, but it's the ashes then stays with the earth and becomes something else, is transformed. So we're transforming, not attempting to destroy or get rid of completely. We're just taking what we can and leave, really leaving the rest behind. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a real Alcoholics Anonymous moment. And I say that seriously because there's a lot of similarities between it and, and addiction. So you may decide, okay, well, I don't need to burn my medals, but I don't need to have them on display. I don't need those awards anymore. Those were nice. Those were great. But maybe I'll just keep one, my favorite one. And then I have room on the wall for all the new awards that I may accomplish or achieve or a mm -hmm. new painting or something new, which I've created. You see, this is the way to do it, uh, we'll say intelligently, but you can't, you can't separate out with every time you go out, you're putting on your, your, you know, your army ball cap or your Navy, you know, you, you can't, you have to get rid of all that. You have to separate out from that and get rid of it. Yeah. And it seems like some, egregores we may have a connection to could be like we, we don't necessarily have something physical uh but I, I do wonder could we focus on let's say a sigil or uh, uh which i'm sure everyone you guys know what sigils are if you're listening to this you know what a sigil is so you <laughs> you create a sigil and that is my connection i'm going to say this is it i'm okay here's a physical representation and now i'm going to burn that Yes. 
Yeah. Now, generally speaking, most people will have some kind of physical representation. I mean, mm -hmm. rarely, rarely do they rarely. have a connection and they don't have something. Um, so, but yeah, if you need to, you can make a substitute. And that substitute is a well-known practice in uh, various uh, uh, shamanic and Vajrayana practices. The use of a substitute is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Well, I've had you for an hour and I mean, and, and, and it's been great, you know, um, if you have a minute, the last thing I'd ask you is just staying clean from egregores. You did mention in your book at the end, I do believe that was the idea, was uh, you said the hermetic tradition recommends do not sleep in the sense of being passive or distractive, do not be distracted, define forms in one's consciousness and exercise your body. So basically to me, it's those things that have some kind of a self Sent like a, a, a centered spiritual practice, get your own inner authority, the right. more self-aware you are, the more free you're going to be. Exactly. Even, you know, even within groups, and you know, we set up the Institute for Hermetic Studies, uh, we set it up as a, uh, we have conference and we have events that go on. And, you know, I'd like to do more uh, local activities in terms of group events, because I enjoy people. However, it's set up so that people have to take responsibility for their own path. You know, and, and we help, we'll provide a lot of help. But in the end, it's, you have to take responsibility for that path and for the instruction and the lessons that we give. It's not uh, one size fits all. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of inner, inner work. And that focus is constantly saying, no matter who you meet or, or what we can do for you to help you or the people we can bring to help you, you're still responsible for your own awakening. And that's what's going to make you uh, a useful person in your own life, to the people around you, where you're going to be able to really bring joy and happiness and productivity and all those things we want, all those things we sought in other entities and other activities, we're going to be able to bring them out in our own lives. And we're going to bring them to fruition for ourselves and others. And then we're going to realize, okay, I identified with all those things in the past and that was good. That helped me move on. But now I'm here and I'm identifying with myself and myself as a creator. You are listening to Radiant Creators, a collaborative project composed of people whose passion, purpose, and dedication requires forging their own unique path of empowerment and livelihood. A Radiant Creator isn't making a living, they are living. <laughs>